Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Actually, everybody got a copy of, of your book, The American Cinema, yeah. in their gift bags, but I always hold up my copy, which is in pieces, because um, it's been... a great, great compliment. But, um, and, of course, my, also a beat-up copy. Not as damaged, because it's hardcover of Molly's book, reference to Ray, but... Of course, she also wrote um, Love and Other Infectious Diseases and, um, and Holding My Own in No Man's Land, Women and Men in Films and Television. So thank you so much for being here. Um, we were actually doing, uh, going around the room before doing kind of life stories and talking about how we got interested in film. And I realized that I had, um, I had heard about this like, famous date where you went to see Scorpio Rising. Yeah, um, but I didn't know before like what your interest in film because obviously you were like, working for the French film office. You were already very interested in film, but could you tell us a bit about your early interest and how you got into this? Yeah, well, um, of course, there were no film courses then. This was in the late 50s, early 60s when I was in college, and you know, of course, none went Andrew 11 years earlier, of course. Um, but I went to... I had gone to London... Well... It was really Paris. It was in fact, we happened to be in Paris at the same time, but we didn't know each other, which is probably a fortunate thing. I don't somehow. I don't think we were quite ready for each other. Yeah. At that point. <laughs> but the one thing you do in Paris, of course, is see American movies, French movies. Just it's a kind of an immersion course in in film appreciation. So I, I just went to the movies all the time. The theater was my first, had been my first interest, but then I was just caught up in the cinephilia of the '60s and. I had this job, I uh, got this great job at the French Film Office. It's a French government agency that does sort of publicity. It's the publicity arm of the French film industry, which is subsidized, so it's all this sort of government stuff. <coughs> so I was putting out a newsletter in English for the uh, American journalists and also uh, 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 interpreting when the directors came, and it was the sort of height of the Nouvelle Vague and Truffaut and Godard and Chibrol and all these people were coming over, so it was just a great time. And it was during that... I was meeting all the um, sort of New York film critics, and I, I wanted to get into this area. I, I just I really loved it, and some of them would sort of throw off that they had more assignments. Than they, I remember Joe Morgenstern. My, I think my very first writing about film, Joe Morgenstern was then Newsweek critic, right. and he had an something for USIA magazine, and he passed it along to me. And then Andrew, then I met Andrew, uh, and of course he was like the great auteurist and I um, had read him religiously in The Voice and saw him uh, heading a, moderating panels at the New York Film Festival and the opportunity or, what, oh yeah so he called, he was doing an article for GQ on Jean-Paul Belmondo and wanted, it, people would call me for information, we had huge files on French directors and stars and he wanted to do one on Belmondo and did I have information. So I was so excited that I was finally going to meet him. But he just didn't come and he didn't come. And finally, I was at a screening of Scorpio Rising and <laughs> all of all things. And the publicist, I think Andrew, I could see. Where? Knew, where? Do you remember where? Like it a, was at the, one of the, broad, the, the 1600 Broadway, I think, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah, that was the only one. They didn't have 1619. They a screening there. of Scorpio Rising? Said, yeah, wow, yeah. okay. And Rudy Franklin was a publicist, and um, I saw Andrew, because this was the days of the miniskirt, I saw Andrew sort of ogling me, and he went over to me. 
And he went over and asked Rudy Frankie, I could see him saying, you know, who is that? And Rudy turned to me, oh, 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 that's who that is. So he had already talked to me, so he came over and introduced himself. And he was full of this kind of, I mean, he, he, he had been a, a film freak growing up in Queens, right near here. And his, so, all of his social skills were kind of learned from the movie. So he Two went gardens to be So it was kind of elaborate, you know, hat, hello. And so I thought, well, now he's met me. He'll come right over. But he still didn't come. But he finally did. And then so he asked me. Our first date was to see a, a daytime screening of the Chabrol film, Le Bon Fan. For two people from such different backgrounds, we had remarkably similar tastes and still do, I think. We vary sometimes in degree, but you generally not essentially about what we like and don't like. And so Chabrol was one of our first loves, and then he took me for our first date to Howard Johnson's. <laughs> <laughs> and he slurped the Sunday and told me it was sort of minimal prospects, but somehow that didn't deter me, so that was, that was his <laughs> He was then doing Cahiers de Cinema in English, and that, right. that's right, he gave me an assignment. There were four French films at the Museum of Modern Art, and I got to write about them. And then he was expanding the film. I, I started doing theater stuff for The Voice, and this was funny because The Voice, of course, the huge investment in The Voice was in off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway, so the top critics were going to review things in churches and basements and all this avant-garde stuff, so they put me on the Broadway beat. <laughs> I was like... Four-string critics, I was doing Broadway, so I was doing 1776. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so then, at that time, Andrew was going to expand the film coverage, so he had me and Tom Allen and Bill Paul and some other people do film. I was very eager to write about film. Had you written about film before this assignment? Uh, well, you the landed thing I did with Joe type. Morgenstern for USIA magazine, all the stuff I had done for the French, yeah. for the uh, Uni France Bulletin. I mean, right. that, was, you know, that was a real good apprenticeship because I was writing about the new Truffaut Godard, all the new, and the new Louis de Funès as well, you know, right. sort of boulevard stuff as well as art cinema. And so then that, and then, yeah, I think the Cahiers de Cinema was the first, and I remember it, there was this group, the National Society of Film Critics, and they had just begun. And they would meet in different critics' apartments. There were only about 12 of them. There were all the people on the, the weeklies. And it was to counter the Bosley, Bosley Corrales. Does anybody here even remember who that well, is? Well, he's <laughs> come up a few times. Yeah, we've, okay. we've, well, yeah, we've been so, talking about him a lot. Yeah, yeah. have you? So yeah. the, the, the anti-gold standard, I guess. Everybody was reacting against him because the Times had such huge power. So this group, the National Society, Especially was, the foreign films. was formed to counter the Bosley Corral, their influence. It was a very fractious group because it had Pauline you know, and Andrew and John Simon and <laughs> Hollis Alfred and Arthur Knight and well, was in it? Uh, Joe right, Morgan Was he in it then? He yeah. was in it for yeah. a while. So, this, so Crather at the time was on the New York Film he, Critics Circle? Yeah. And then you yeah. you formed the National Society? All the newspapers were on that. And right. this was none of the same people really were in, the, in this okay. group. And it was to counter that. So um, I came in one time with Andrew, and they, in the course of it, they nominated and voted on Stanley Kaufman to be the head of the group. And he said, well, my, the first thing I want to know is, what is Molly Haskell doing here? <laughs> you know, shir shriveled. And <laughs> so then I, it was sort of like I had to get revenge. To, I had to become a film critic so I could be a legitimate member of the National Society of Film Critics. Wow. So that was kind of what it was like in those early days. Is it true? I, I remember in Levin, in fact, uh, I don't remember the election, but there was a, a year where... Mr. Sarris was at the Village Voice, and 
you were at, I think, New York. Right. Yeah. So you all were kind of... It was terrible. Terrible. Yeah. I mean, did, did, what, was it a case where you all were reviewing the same, the same film? Movies. And yeah. did you all have different, like, would you all have disagreements and be like... Well, well first of all, we had a, this not, we would try, we would try even to go to different screenings, not even go together. Right. And then we, the, one of the things we always do is talk about films after. We couldn't do that because we would either use or react against or somehow be affected by each other's ideas. So it was just a horrible period. And we were sure everyone was just comparing. I'm sure people weren't paying that much attention, but we sort of were sure everyone was <laughs> comparing the reviews and saying this is hers, is his worse, his, hers is worse. So it was just extremely uncomfortable. And then I guess for better or worse, I got canned from New York Magazine. So <laughs> um, that didn't arise again. I was at Vogue for a while. But that was the only time that that happened. It was at, obviously at The Voice, you were first string critic, and you were giving us stuff at all good stuff. I mean, you weren't just um, cast giving us the. It was, I have to remember that was a horrible. That was sort of well, it was a horrible thing because you, the person who hired you left right afterwards. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And left you, you know, very defenseless there in New York. Somebody who I didn't get along with. Yeah. Him, and he then became very. Famous well, I finally, I finally was forced out of the voice uh, by yeah. somebody. Well, I'd say we, we all know what that's like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we all know that trouble. He was just the first of many to yeah. the yeah. voice. Yeah. Didn't Jonas make a uh, yeah, discovery? Tell about Jonas. Oh, oh, well, you, you know, I, 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 I've been struggling trying to do a memoir, and uh, <laughs> I haven't made much progress in it, so don't hold your breath. Um... <laughs> <laughs> um I, I, I have been, you know, pretty much uh, most of my life. My story starts around much earlier than Molly's in this field. Uh, I, I had gone to Columbia in 1946. I was admitted to Columbia College, and I was one of only 50 civilians that year who were admitted to the college, and. Um, yeah. The rest were all returning veterans hmm. who were somewhat older, more responsible, a lot of them were married. I never went through a Joe College period, you know, because most of the, most of the, uh, most of my classmates, and my roommate actually, because uh, I stayed, I stayed up at Livingston Hall in Columbia, uh, was in the army and he was, uh, and, and he was, he, he had a family and so on. So it, it was uh, it was a strange period, and I remember what one, uh, one time uh, late in the period, and Columbia College is where I I followed Jack Kerouac, who was a predecessor, uh, down to the down from 116th Street down to Third Street at the Village. Um, I used to walk all these distances and, and go to a lot of revival houses. And uh, and I, that that's when I developed my mania for film. And I remember there was a course being given in creative writing, and this was about 1948, 49. And uh, it was given by a literary eminence called F. W. Du P. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of him or know about him. But anyway, I, I was in the golden age of Columbia, the Columbia faculty, Trilling and. Van Doren and uh, Mark Van Doren and a lot of other people, the father of the, the quiz cheater. Uh, <laughs> and um, um, 
you had to be interviewed uh, uh, to take the course. And so the P asked me, said, Andrew, what do you want to write? And I said, I would like to write some film criticism. Because by then I was, I was going down, I was going down to, uh, down 42nd Street, other places, and there were these ma secondhand magazine stuff. I used to particularly like to read the old Esquires. We had Meyer 11 and 30s, and they had great writers writing for Esquire back then. Uh, uh, Ernest Hemingway wrote a, uh, writing an essay on a new upcoming uh, fighter called Joe Lewis. You know, and I remember him saying that Joe Lewis was the only fighter he'd ever seen who could turn a, a right hook into a right cross in midair. And, uh, and this was long before Lewis was world champion and so forth. So I thought there were these great, great essays of Gilbert Seldes, whose daughter is still acting in the Broadway theater, uh, Seven Lively Arts, and Meyer Levin was a critic, and Patterson Murphy. And then I read other, other old mag 30s magazines with Graham Greene and other, other writers and so on. So I was very steeped in, in a lot of the, these things. I'd gotten steeped not only in old films, but in the old film critics. And um, so I said, I want to write some film criticism. Says, oh, no, you don't want to do that. Nobody is in film criticism. And anyway, we were already lost. Film criticism is dead, right? He was a <laughs> decent writer. But, you know, he's, he's, he's gone to he's gone Hollywood. He's, he, he, he's right. And it, he ruined his career. Blah, blah, blah. Agee, he said. James A.G. Yeah, James A.G., yeah. And... Um, now that was that, but I still I persevered. I wrote some film critic, which is not very good. In fact, now I teach film a film seminar at Columbia. Crit film criticism. Film seminar. criticism seminar, and uh, the kids there now write much better than I was writing back then. I I wasn't writing that well, but anyway, um, after that, uh, I went to graduate school for a while, and then I, then I went into the army. And I just to drop my academic deferment, and I went in the army during the Korean War, and that was 52. I mean, Eisenhower was just coming into office to, to 54, and I was let out a little early so I could finish my master's, which <laughs> I never finished. I, uh, and they finally gave me one after about my tenth book, you know, and, uh, and uh, just a sort of an honorary master's. Uh, well, no, they let your book be your thesis. Yeah, they? they let it be your thesis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so anyway, uh, so 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 at that time, I I didn't have a job. I was I was a complete failure, a flop, and everything. And uh, I uh, I went to teachers' college. I figured, well, at least I can teach English in Queens High School, you know. Uh, and uh, so I took a course, uh, one of the few courses. It was being given in the United States then by a man called Roger Tilton, who did a film called Jazz Dance, and and he he did for that time, which was about the winter of fifty four, uh, fifty five. That time, uh, it was one of the few film courses being given in the United States, mm -hmm. and there was one in NYU by somebody who never went very far, an academic who. Fooled around with the female students too much, and uh, never, never advanced. So, so anyway, uh, so I was, you know, always raising my hand, you know, being, yeah. you know, 
and, and I had the, all this background with all these old movies. <clears throat> and one day, a, a strange man named Jonas Mikas walked into the classroom, and he was, he was starting a new film magazine called Film Culture. And it was a glossy magazine, and somehow he had, he had come to the United States about five years earlier. It's supposed to have been <coughs> Lithuanian uh, poet laureate. Um, and, uh, and he was a very strange man, and uh, he, he needed an editor, because he had these fantastic articles from abroad, but they were, the English was come see, come saw, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so, so I said, okay, you know, there was no money in it. So I said, okay, uh, I'll do the editing if you let me review a movie. And he said, okay, that's fair enough. So, uh, so that, that was my first review. It was uh, The Country Girl. I don't know how many of you have ever seen it. Oh, yeah. With Bing Crosby, the Clifford O'Dette's play. It was on Broadway with... Coming back Hagen, to Broadway now, right? I mean, the Hagen. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like a revival. Yeah. yeah. Mike Nichols it's directing. Been, it's, yeah. 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 It's still around, I guess. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, and, um, and, you know, I wrote the review. And at that time I was going... I was having two other students in the course. One of them, Eugene Archer, was in a course. Uh, he was in, came out of school, graduated from uh, general studies, and had gotten a, a sort of routine job at the Times. And he just, uh, he, he later won a fellowship to go to Paris to study the uh, things of Henry James or something. He spent all his time at the Cinematheque, and we were we were both fascinated by film and the history of film, and he, he, he really grew up with film, uh, very great film, so we exchanged all kinds of, and collaborated and so forth. But anyway, so I we used to go for coffee after the class, and uh, so I wrote this, you know, this review, blasting the movie, blasting Crosby being horribly miscast, I think Paul Kelly played it on stage, and uh, William Holden and Grace Kelly got an Oscar for it. I just blasted her too, <laughs> and, um, and blasted everybody. And, and that was the first time I'd really seen my name in print, or my or my my writing in print. And I said, "Who's this crazy guy?" You know. And I <laughs> realized how powerful print was. And um, until that point on, I, I began to. That was the first my first review, fifty-five. So I've been writing reviews for you might say fifty-two years. But you didn't moderate your tone and temper that much. No, no. I, I always had kind of peculiar arrogance. Yeah, you did. Because I was spoiled <laughs> rotten by a mother who. Well, I mean, you wouldn't have done the American cinema if you hadn't. That no. was something crazy about doing it, that. It is crazy. The presumptuousness. The presumption, right. yeah. <laughs> but, and, and the voice jobs was, was 1960? Is that when you started? Well, 1960 was, yeah. I had done a few other pieces for film culture in the meantime. In the 1960s, I got a job. I was doing other things, other jobs, just to make a living. And in 1960, I got a job uh, through a political connection. My mother had some political connections in, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And so I, 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 it was a complicated story. So I was a technical officer in the census of 1960 in Brooklyn. And I'm walking down the street in Williamsburg, and who should I bump into again but Jonas Mikas? And Jonas is shooting a film. 
Huh? Hey, what's the patron saying? Yeah, yeah. Hey, he's responsible for me being here today or being anywhere, uh, anywhere except <laughs> in Queens teaching English, you know. And, uh, and um, or trying to teach English. But anyway, uh, so, so he said, you know, I, I'm working on my film right now, and, um, and he was doing the editing in Winsburg. That's how he happened to be walking down the street in Winsburg, Brooklyn. And he, he said, I, I, uh, I'm doing a, uh, I'm doing a, a, a film, it's Guns in the Trees, I'm, I must say. And I feel very disloyal, but it was a terrible film. But anyway, <laughs> and I felt that way about, about my benefactor. You know, I never, I've never wrote anything negative about Jonas, but, um, but I, you know, I wasn't into experimental films and so forth. But anyway, and he was editing it in a little place. In fact, I wound up on the cutting room floor. I, I was in the film briefly, and then I, they, they cut me out. But um, I was supposed to be looking at some books on the shelf and something. And it was always just a cameo appearance. But he says, you know, um, I have a column in this paper I'm doing, a paper I work for, this uh, Village Voice uh, out in, you know, it's a, it was a throwaway paper. Although it charged, it always charged admission, uh, charged uh, for right. copies. And he says, I, I need somebody to fill in for me for a few weeks. You know, so <laughs> you can imagine New York Times, you know, uh, <laughs> somebody saying to me, you know, uh, Manola or, or Scott <laughs> saying to me, you know, I, I, I like to take a few weeks off. Why don't you walk in there and take my place, you know? <laughs> I walk in there and they throw me out the window, and that's a big, 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 big building now. And um, um, but Voice was such a strange place in those days because Jerry Chalmer was the editor, and he was all into off Broadway. In fact, I, I recently reviewed a new movie by Al with Al Pacino in it, who's now about sixty-seven, and, and he looks it too, and. Uh, and uh, I saw him, we saw him together in The Indian Wants the Bronx yeah. when you were reviewing. I, yeah. I think you reviewed, I reviewed that. that. I, did. I think I did. you reviewed I that. The Indian Wants the Israel Howard's yeah. play right. uh, way back uh, in those days. And um, anyway, uh, so, so I walked into the place, and Talmer uh, was the editor of the entertainment section. But he was much all, all hipped up. He invented Off-Broadway. He invented Obies and everything else. And he, he later, you know, waited in vain for Richard Watts to die or something and, and to take over the drama thing of the post. And uh, sad story. But anyway, uh, Talmer uh, looked at me, you know, didn't know me from Adam, because uh, I walked in with my first review, uh, which was Psycho. Yeah, Hitch, Alfred Hitchcock. I had seen it just a few days before, and I just dashed off at one of these kind of cinema reviews. And <laughs> Talmud didn't like Psycho. He didn't like uh, uh, Janet Lee's bra. He thought it was typical of Hollywood's plasticity, you know, something. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so on and so forth. But when the piece appeared, and it was strictly a Cahiers de Cinema piece, French-influenced and everything, Andre Bazan, son of Andre Bazan. Well, this is when nobody took Hitchcock seriously. Yeah, except not, uh, yeah, yeah, everybody liked Hitchcock, but uh, you know, but not as an artist, not as a serious artist. You know, and I compared him to you know artists in off Broadway and so forth. 
and they got more hate mail for that one piece than they'd ever gotten before. And that sort of established my reputation at The Voice. I, I, I sort of made people, that arrogant tone I had, that I know it all to them, that's in the American cinema too. And uh, for no good reason. So that, that, that's how I became a critic. And that was 1960. So you might say that that was the beginning of my weekly could, could you talk about the um, sort of interest you were gaining in taking American cinema seriously? I think that Dan Talbot was just starting to program like Howard Hawks movies oh, yeah, and, around yeah. that time. and um, you know, you, But that was the exception to the rule. The repertory theaters were showing European films. Oh, yeah. Uh, Talbot, uh, Dan Talbot, we became friends. And... Uh, and in New York, a theater at that time was reviewing, the, they would do all people like Howard Hawks and Hitchcock Festival, Groot Chaplin, and, 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 and also the foreign people, uh, you know, Bergman and Fellini. Yeah, of course, that, that, that was the art cinema, but it yeah. was very unusual. It was very unusual to do the old because, American movies. Uh, there, were, there was a lot of revival theater in those days, down yeah. in Bleecker Street Cinema and all that, but they were mostly, mostly French. Yeah, mostly French. Yeah. Well, Italian, yeah. Italian and French. Well, what uh, else? There, 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 were, uh, there, were, there were these things on the Beverly, you know, there were all these under the L and all that. There were a lot of uh, theaters that were showing these old classics. There was a theater on 55th Street. It later became a sort of a porn theater, but but it, at that time it, it would do things like all the films of Preston Sturges. Oh, really? You know, and um, and so on, so forth. So 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 this was nothing new. But at the, at the, that point, uh, we became uh, Archer and me became friend, very friendly with uh, with uh, with Dan Talbot and with uh, people like Peter Bogdanovich and so forth, who was originally in theater. It later became was interested in film too. So it, well, this was it, the well, beginning of the reevaluation of American cinema. It, it's beginning. But did did Gene Archer get any of that taste into the Times or not? He really didn't. Well, no, he he didn't get he didn't get the 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 taste of the her of yeah. the politique. No, he he Archer was very a very sad story because Archer. It sort of introduced the Nouvelle Vague directors in the Times. Mm -hmm. He wrote these. He was a fourth-string film critic, but he was also did a lot of essays uh, for the Sunday paper, and he, he he had taken up he had master typing in the Air Force. He was an Air Force veteran, and he, he could type like ninety words a minute. He was you know, fantastic. <laughs> he, he was the fastest typist I've ever I've ever seen I've ever met, and. Uh, and he could knock off articles like in an afternoon, you know, like nothing. But um, uh, he, he was doing the, the, the Nouvelle Vague directors and, and he, was, he, fe he felt that, he, that they owed him, you know. <laughs> so then when he left the Times, he, he became infatuated with a, with a well, there's another no, story from my memoir, you know. <laughs> 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 he wanted, yeah. He, he wanted to get into making films, making art films, and uh, he wanted the French to help him. And you know, as long as he was on the Times, the French would look into his eyes, you know. 
But uh, when he left the Times, the French directors looked past him. And that's, uh, that's, uh, that's something I, if you ever get an influential birth and people look into your eyes, don't take it too seriously. Because if, you, if they lose that opportunity to be publicized, they're going to look right past you. Mm -hmm. I, 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 saw, I saw that happen firsthand. Uh, and so that's why I've never taken anything people tell me seriously. I mean, celebrities, actors, so forth. Hmm. You both changed American film criticism so much. I wonder if you agree that you've also changed American movies. Um, I think just in the sense that all directors now think of themselves as artists. Uh, yeah. That's not so much from the critics, it's from the European cinema, too. They want it to be like... Yeah, well, well it, it was a freak. Now, the American cinema is based on a uh, on a, a issue of Cahiers, uh which did all the American directors, you know, the, it, with their pictures, but not one whole not, issue, not yeah, one a whole issue. That, that came out when? That came out oh, uh, this the, this came out yeah the, 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 this this I wrote this I wrote after the Pauline Gale controversy. Uh, Pauline wrote this because I, I wrote a, a piece in film culture called uh, Notes on the Auteur Theory. Uh, Before you did the book, uh, yeah, in, in 1962. <clears throat> so I, I dated from that. Period sixty two and, and so around sixty three sixty four, uh, Pauline uh, launched into her creative attack in 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 the film quarterly, and I had never seen her um, up to that point. I'd read her, but I hadn't seen her. I thought she was a babe, you know. I thought she, uh, yeah, because <laughs> I hadn't seen her, and. Uh, <laughs> And I wasn't worried. I wasn't worried she never too had, much. Had an image of you as being a hunk. No, 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 no. She no, no, never no. figured you for Andrew. No, 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 no. Well, I, you know, I, I, I. She recognized you for a film. Yeah. Well, uh, Marion Maggot, who used to late Marion Maggot, who used to write the commentary. You know, she, she said that we were like Spence Tracy and uh, and Catherine Hepburn and. And she was certainly not Kevin Hepburn, but, uh, but but she said, "Well, you were certainly not Spencer Tracy." You know, so that put me in my place. But um, it, it wasn't Pauline who said that; it was Marion Maggot, my friend. But anyway, um, the, the 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 piece came out in '62, and uh, and that got got this, and everybody agreed with her. You know. Uh, Everybody in the literary and film establishment pretty much agreed with her, uh, and I was the crazy one. And because if I had to do it over again, people ask me, would I do it differently? When uh, Truffaut wrote his article "La Politique des Auteurs," and he coined the phrase "La Politique des Auteurs," what he meant by "politique" was not theory, but policy. You know, it was like you know the French. After World War II, the French critics were, you know, they were, I guess, too young for the war or something. The French, during the occupation, they could not see any American movies uh, during the 40s. So, so, so after the war, they saw, like, uh, 
Monsieur Arcadon, at the same time they saw Citizen Kane for the first time, or Magnificent Embassies for the first time. So they showed the continuity. They began to think of clusters of films rather than... And so th th that was the model for the, for, for the American cinema. But, uh, but I, I changed it somewhat because I, I wanted to make stronger distinctions between what, who I thought were the great directors and who I thought were yeah, in, in between. And, 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 and of course it was wild and some of it was, uh, I, I revised it later. Uh, Billy Wilder, for example, is my notorious case. I, 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 less than meets the eye category. And, uh, and, and, truth, and there I was influenced too much by Truffaut. Truffaut wrote a, a very ne negative article. He, Truffaut didn't like Lubitsch or Wilder. That was it. Those were his blind spots. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think partly because uh, later I found that the reason the French understood these, these American movies and these genre directors was that they didn't know English very well. And, and therefore, they weren't... Qualine was notorious at screenings that they that somebody would say, <laughs> would say, uh, uh, would say some stupid line, and she'd go, ah, <laughs> you know, and that was the end of that was the end of that movie. You know, that was the uh, she, she intimidated everybody. She was a very forceful person. <laughs> but they, the French, they, they they couldn't pick up these whoppers, and so they went for these genre films, and and they could appreciate them. So, so anyway, a combination of things. But what, what really motivated the American cinema was that that was my rebuttal to Pauline. Uh, that was my rebuttal, because I, I wrote a very weak rejoinder, and, and I, it wasn't very effective. And, and so, so I, I really uh, just put that, the whole thing together. And that was, that was a rejoinder to Pauline's thing. Could you just, I, I, I love the phrases you came up with, the pantheon, strange seriousness. Oh, yeah. Like, they, they still work today. You, and, and, it's, and it kind of says well, it all, you like, an article in Tomorrow's Times in the entertainment section, yeah. uh, where... Uh, oh, we've said uh, Tony Scott's piece, yeah. yeah. You've seen it with a tribute to Ebert, yeah. to Roger Ebert. And um, the French critic, Ebert. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Roger Colbert, Stephen Colbert, Roger Ebert. Yeah. <laughs> what he says finally, you know, he's talking defending uh, Ebert's, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down thing. <laughs> and he says all, all criticism, and I agree with him on that particularly. Uh, all, all criticism. I, I feel I am the sum of every conversation I've ever had about movies. From way back, from time I was in high school, college, you know, all the conversations I've ever had, I've always, I've always looked for people who had something interesting to say about anything. And I think most critics, most writers would say that they are the sum of every conversation they've ever had. And I think. You know, I, I, I was the sum of all the conversations I had. But, you know, I also had my own, you know, eccentricities and, and things. But, you know, basically, it, it was a collaborative. But the thing about the Pantheon and so forth and so forth, uh, one, of, one of the 
people that had a great deal of influence on me was a, a fellow called Stephen Gottlieb, who was a good friend and still, still a good friend of mine. And, um, and uh, his father was a Hollywood producer, produced the Abbott and Costello movies. Mm -hmm. And, um, um, and he, 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 he invented a lot of those categories. Uh, he suggested a lot of them. And I, I just seized upon it and used them and stuck people into these categories. And, and that's, that's, that's the way that, that evolved. Looking back, don't you think that you raised a few consciousnesses about feminism in Hollywood, at least for a little while? For a little while, that's a good catch. <laughs> really, it's, it's really distressing to me to see, because there was a lot of conversation going on at that time. This was the, like the 70s and the early 80s about the roles of women in film, and not just among film I mean, male film critics were concerned that there weren't enough good roles for women, and there were columnists talking about it. And now it's like, Feminism is a dirty word or something, and the arts and leisure section never does anything on, from a woman's perspective or a feminist perspective, ever. I mean, I used to do a lot of pieces for them. Part of it was some kind of, I guess, new people came in. But I think, you know, the situation, I mean, it's not as if there's a, 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 there are no women, because there are women, more women directors than there have been in a while and some interesting roles, but I think Hollywood has just gone over to the adolescent male on both sides of the camp, you know, in the films, and I'm thrilled to see as many women here today as there are, because I think even film criticism is, at least official film criticism, is very dominated by men, and I, I, mean, I, don't, I don't quite know what's happened, I mean, I think it's cyclical, so maybe it'll change, I mean, I do, I have a lot of theories about what's going on, but, um, yeah, I think there was a, a generally raised consciousness there for a while, and I think it was a more interesting. And I mean, I think like the whole Hillary thing is, is now raising the issue again, but it also exposes, I think, the deep misogyny that there is in our culture well, you, on the part of women as well. You, you pointed out that for a parallel between Kate Couric, the, the way everybody jumps on Kate Couric and, and Hillary, it's the same kind of thing. Well, that you, and I also was doing a big, uh, the New York Film Society is doing their tribute to Meryl Streep this year. And I was thinking, I, so I had to write a piece for Film Comment, and I was looking at, at her films, and I'm just, it was a, it's amazing the career she's had, given the time she's lived in. But she's made something like 43 films at a time when most actresses of, you know, of her, her age group would fall, sort of fallen by the wayside or just doing minor stuff. And she's made the transition to character actress. I think she's sort of more fun now, in a way, than she's been yeah. in a long time. But... You can see her playing these unsympathetic roles really interestingly all through her career and sort of think about what that means. But, I mean, she even does a kind of Hillary look-alike in Men's <laughs> Actually, I watched it again. She really does utilize Hillary's gestures and, and, and very, very consciously model. And I think there's one, I don't know if anyone saw that, there's one where she plays a sh an Upper West Side Shrink Prime, I think it was called. Yeah, did you see that? It's a very funny movie, and Uma Thurman is her patient, and Uma Thurman is going out with this younger guy, and gradually uh, she keeps talking about what they're doing and all these wild things they're doing. You find, Meryl Streep finally realizes it's her son. And she's this very kind of emancipated, liberal-thinking psychotherapist about, oh, yeah, it's fine if you go out with a Jew, oh, what, and, this, and then suddenly it's her son, and she's a Jewish mother, and she's just you know, going crazy about this. But I think she's playing Pauline Kale a little bit in that. <laughs> <laughs> she has this kind of, you know, breathy, 
intense, uh, I don't know, it's, she's, it's very funny, but anyway, I think um, it kind of illuminates the difficulty women have in, from Kramer versus Kramer on playing an unsympathetic role, and it's like Katie Couric, if she, if she had the so-called gravitas that these, so, that these other male people supposedly have, then nobody would like her as a woman because she wouldn't be feminine. So it's a really no-win situation, I think. It's a little different from the Hillary thing, but similar. So. What are your theories that you're alluding to? Excuse me? You said you had some, some theories about... Well, I think, um, I think it's a terror of female power, basically. I mean, I think it, it, it's, it's Freudian and, 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 and social. I mean, I think a lot of the, the violence in, in the world now is from a kind of threatened uh, uh, male supremacy. And I think this kind of retreat into adolescence of the sort of Judd Apatow things and the male bonding. I mean, we've seen this before, but it's, it's uh, for instance, um, David Denby had an interesting piece about the sort of disappearing romantic comedy, and he talked about Knocked Up. And he says, why can't the Catherine Hagel character and the women get smart lines like they used to get in screwball comedy? But, and I, I, I want to write about this sometime, but I think the, the difference is that in screwball comedy, women didn't have jobs. So they got to be smart talking, and they were. I mean, they, you don't see women in movies ever talking like that today. In fact, in one of Andrew's classes, he was showing a screwball comedy once, and the, and the, the, girl, uh, the girls in the class said, well, she's so mean. You know, this, <laughs> this back talk. They were really sort of shocked at that. So you have women um, uh, not talking like that, but they have the job. I mean, here's this Amazon woman, Catherine Hagel, with this powerful, powerful job. And this is what the men are terrified of retreating from. And I, you see, I mean, I look at the arts and leisure section. You'll know these people. I don't. There's an actor in the um, movie section who's doing a funny. Uh, the movie's coming out where he suddenly he's exposed for however many minutes on the screen because his girlfriend is leaving him. He's in the shower. And then there's the other one about this guy in the tub. Did you, with, a, with John Malkovich, he's doing a YouTube type little video, <laughs> and he's nude. And I mean, there's something going on where there's this regression, this, this endless male regression, and it's I think it is a retreat from from um, from women. And I think it goes back. I mean, it's this sort of powerful woman in the nerd, where a woman is allowed to be. I mean, I was talking to a man recently, and he said something. I think I've said this too, but. It sort of reinforced it that the difference between, say, Hillary and Golda Meir or Thatcher is that they're they can be maternal people. They're older. They're uh, they're not they're not romantically viable at all. Whereas Hillary is like your wife or your sister. These she's not the maternal figure yet. Um, so I think that's it's just too threatening. So you're allowed to be one thing or the other. You can be politically powerful or you can be um, a feminine woman, and the thing is that what every—I mean, I think there are other issues too. I wouldn't say that people who are against Hillary are necessarily anti-feminist or anti-female, because I think there can be other issues. But I do think that's a, a huge part of it, and um, I think it's that everything she's had to do, people can't stand her because of the, who she is, and she she had to become that person to get to where. She got to be, <laughs> so it's a kind of impossible okay, yeah. conundrum. Yeah. Okay. I want to say one kind thing about Pauline Kael, <coughs> who's my Speaking mortal, mortal enemy forever. Non-sexual. 
talking about non-sexual uh-huh. women. Yeah, um, the, um, the I, I think the one what, the one contribution she's made to film criticism, lasting contribution, uh, because I always felt she went up and down, you know, do, 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 this and, that, and she was more more interesting as a writer than uh, I think as a real critic. Um, but one of the things she did is that she gave a license to all film critics, male and female, uh, to say that something turned them on. Hmm. And you know, in the old before before she yeah, came along, yeah, there was always you know, oh, by the way, you know, you know, and everybody was. Especially the male critics, Bosley Crowley, were very aloof from the whole subject. They never, they never suggested that anybody got them going, and um, and she she made it possible for people to. Uh, I, I think that's a great contribution. It is. It's interesting. Uh, that people a woman people did are it too. very are very honest. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think a man could have quite done that. No. Right no. Yeah. Without uh, yeah. violating the canons of good yeah. taste. Go ahead. But I was going to ask, just how big was the whole Pauline, you know, explosion and, and what, what all of you were doing? Because I think it came up the other day. I mean, it's, there's a question of whether or not something like that could happen right now, but I, it's not totally clear to some of us exactly how how far that reach was. I mean, I, I imagine people didn't have. You know, pictures of her, you know, T-shirts or, or something like that. You know, <laughs> well, it was kind of the rock star thing, but in a very much more minor way. But yeah. some people thought it was crazy. But there were three people that were in contention. It was Andrew and Pauline and John Simon. I remember they once had the Times invited each of you to to vent. And some people thought, "Why wow, these people? You know, what is this all?" About? I don't think it was Pauline. I think oh. that was that was me and, you and John. John okay. Just me and John. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Pauline wouldn't participate yeah, in that. Yeah. She was beneath her dignity. Well, it was about, <laughs> it was like this was the period of you know peak sort of cinephile and film critics had never had any. You know, nobody at that point grew up went to took film critic things or became film critics or, and suddenly film itself was hot, you know, it was just exciting and people were talking about it, that whole era of, of just concentration on it and great movies were coming out, so there was, and people were reading The Voice and they were reading all that, there was this cinephilia, so as a consequence, the people who, I think, were changing the, the look of things and the, the taste, which was Andrew, and, and John was sort of rear guard, I mean, he was an elegant writer, but kind of rear guard. Uh, whereas Pauline, the, best cri- the best critic of the 19th century. Yeah, whereas Pauline, <laughs> so, and there were people who, there really were sort of factions. I mean, they didn't all get lined up and vote or anything, but don't you think there really were people oh, yeah. who felt John Simon was holding up the standards of the... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, whereas yeah. Pauline and, and well, 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 also, also, also he, he served a very useful function. Uh, you know, people would say, isn't it awful what John Simon wrote? You know, saying oh, yeah. that saying that Liza Minnelli has no chin. Now, isn't that terrible? Yeah, they, were now, that, 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 they were always quoting him, using him, to, so they could say something nasty that wouldn't, have, wouldn't, wouldn't <laughs> yeah. be stuck to them, you know. Now, the, the other thing about John that I, I realized when, when I went to England is that uh, 
finally went to England is that in England, John Simon would just be lost in the shuffle. Everybody in England is so nasty that John would just be one, one, of, the, one of the crowd, you know. But, but here in America, we all want to be nice guys, you know. We all want to be, we all want to be friendly with everybody and... Uh, and, uh, and also respectable. So this was a really unbuttoned period of yeah. writing. I mean, this was, I think that Pauline did break some kind of barrier, or oh, yeah. a language barrier, politeness barrier. So that was, ex it was exciting. But was it really, was it still just restricted to the your community of people that you knew? I mean, or did you really get a sense that, you know, someone on the street or someone who just liked going to the movies was aware of this kind of did the average stockbroker know that? <laughs> Not stockbroker, but people in the arts and who are interested in the arts. Yeah, I think we're in on it, in on the conversation. Or I mean, and some not. I mean, I remember when those two articles appeared in the Times. A lot of people thought, "What is?" We're sort of shocked that the Times would run it and that you all would do. I mean, because it was something that were, they were attacking each other, and a lot of people were made uncomfortable by that. I think. Mm -hmm. So that was a lot of it. it was Especially, because I, I was much nastier than John. I didn't want it, him to do it. I yeah, my mother was against thing. me doing it at all, but I, I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know, that was a mixed thing, but I think the general um, conversation was exciting, and Susan Sontag was writing about movies, and you know, it was just, everybody was discovering things, and I think that was more important, really, than the, the tensions between, I think, in, in a funny way, we were less aware. Of, I mean, we knew that, that Pauline and Andrew had, had this run-in kind of in print. But afterwards, it was her acolytes that had sort of kept it alive in a way, more than a Andrew had. I don't know quite what. Don't you think that's true a little bit? That, yeah, they had yeah. a hard time letting go. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for some reason. And they, they say Andrew's the one that can't let it go, because he does refer to Pauline from time to time. But I, I don't think it's a kind of no. constant... <coughs> After all, chafing thing mm. on for you that it is for them. No, the, the whole thing. Well, yeah. Andrew became more of an academic, and there was a difference because Andrew really did. I mean, Pauline believed in it, the now is everything. Don't look back, and she didn't like to look at films again. Whereas Andrew's the opposite. He she said, and and I, and I I can't believe she actually said this. She never sees a movie more than once. She said that a lot. She yeah. said that. Yeah, she, she said that a lot. Yeah, that was did. her trademark. Yeah. Yeah. That she knows. She goes. I, I kind of, I don't know. I, she no. wouldn't. Re, she wouldn't. She might have looked at it again. She couldn't resist. I, I, I read an interview with her yeah. where she said that because she had, was closing a piece after she closed, she wanted to. She did go back. I think on Nashville, McCabe, and I think also Tag of the War, just to like fact check. So I know like those three films. She, she missed this thing. She yeah. did admit to going yeah. back again, but she put it in the context of. Well, I closed the piece, or I, I, I was about to close the piece, I wanted to make sure I got all of my facts straight. And then she immediately, I remember in the interview, she said, but I've already dealt with the film, so it doesn't have an effect on me. I was just, I was watching it. Yeah, yeah. She, she feels that she can do it all on the one viewing. And, well, maybe um, she had a, 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 an absolutely photographic memory, too. I, I, but I can't believe she would deprive herself of the pleasure of going back to old 30s and 40s films. I, I wanted to ask you, Molly, when you did this, because it was, I think, unusual for uh, when you wrote From Reverence to Rape to be looking back at Hollywood movies. That, um, you sort of reframed Hollywood, and you went back to the 20s. Yeah, and, was, and then how did, and, like, how did you get to see this? Yeah, because there were no, obviously right. no VCRs and no... Um, well, uh, Museum of Modern Art, uh, and there was a guy, Bill Everson, yeah. who used to show oh, films okay. in his home. He was quite insane. He was our Henri Langlois. Yeah, his apartment, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
there were a few that Andrew gave me. In fact, Andrew, <laughs> there was one. What was the one that I, the one that I hadn't seen that you uh, you had to fill me in on? Was the one with Margaret Sullivan and Charles Boyer, which is oh, a working yeah, girl. Oh yeah, yeah, but Backstreet. Was it Backstreet? Yeah. Well, she's the working girl that. Uh, that uh, with John Bowles. Yeah, no, well. Sure anyway. Yeah. He, got, he started to tell me the plot, and he got so choked up because <laughs> he was a real sucker for these old women's films. It's one of the things I love about him. He loved those movies. But basically, I did I did see them, and um, I don't know. It just that that would seem to be the only way to do it. I mean, I didn't see. I've only recently seen Theda Bauer. I never, you couldn't see her. They were just, yeah. That wasn't available at all. But you could see stills and get a, read about them and get a sense of them. But I think most everything in there I had seen. Yeah, yeah, Cynthia. There's some concern among academics that's elsewhere as well. I think during the um, 70s and 80s, sort of feminist uh, criticism, not only film criticism, um, but that it was very white focused. Um, and film criticism, I think, Do you think that that's. Well, yeah, we were really, um, well, not just that, but somebody, one of the theoreticians criticized me as, um, what was it? that I was an uncritical celebrator of heterosexual romance. And I thought, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this is what we, it was the medium. It, we, we were not critical of it because it was pre-gay sort of rights and, and even the, I mean, we were, femi- we were critical of the patriarchal biases, but not of racial and sexual ones particularly. Well, it would seem that those have their own separate entities. And yeah, you can, you can do all of it from by and all, but it seemed like, you know, there are, you can focus on just one thing yeah. at a time. I think so. I mean, I don't think I could. I mean, I did deal with which what those few black films that there were. But I was interesting, there wasn't that. I mean, back before, you know, 25 years ago, black female performers, I mean, you're dealing with a very, you know, small amount of footage you can deal with. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and yeah, I, I, I'm not particularly apologetic about it. I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm a prisoner of the times as much as anybody else, and this was the focus, this was the orientation then, and I think we were more, certainly more aware of race as time went on than we were of gay, I mean the... When you, at the time, seen Douglas Sirk films, or certain films, at the time, I mean, was it apparent to some people who were intellectuals or whatever, that there was coding in those films that that supposedly, you know, according to the cellular closet that the gay audiences could get, but maybe the straight audiences did get? I mean, were you aware that some films had coding, but, you know, one, you know, you just couldn't talk about it? Or was it later on that, like, you went back to see it and went, oh, okay, I, now I see the, 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 you know, the coding. Like, I guess like Rebecca. I mean, they always talk about Rebecca, uh, uh, the, the, the homoeroticism, the lesbianism that's, Hinted at Rebecca. I mean, oh, were, yeah. were you aware of that? Judith Oh, a certain actor. Well, it's certainly something like uh, Mercedes, uh, Mercedes McCambridge and Joan Crawford and Johnny Sorry. Guitar. Yeah. Was that aware? Was <laughs> that, that, yeah. I don't, but I, but Cirque, I don't think people were reading it. This, I mean, they were. They weren't even. It was sort of well, after the well, fact. Well, AG, AG used to write about Nance actors. And there were, there were a whole group well, of you know, Edward Everett Horton they were gay, and, yeah. uh, you know, and yeah. the other, other character actors who were sort and of sissies that they, they, they would do like this. And they were brilliant actors. They were, all of them were brilliant. 
but they, they were they, they were coded, uh, but they were coded as sissy actors. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, and and very often they'd be like Billy DeWolf, you know. Later, it was one of the latest ones. He would he would always you know be the failed suitor of a girl, you know, because well, well, like, everybody would laugh at the right. idea well, of Billy like DeWolf. And, I mean, you look at Rebel Without a Cause now. You know Salminio's character is... Yeah, oh, okay. that is yeah. very explicit, yeah. Yeah, I think, well, I think one interesting example is, I think some of it, maybe people in the know, I mean, the gay audience was always the most sort of sophisticated about, about everything, maybe, yeah. but about that. But something like, um, I look at the Doris Day Rock Hudson films now, and there's a lot of interesting kind of bisexual byplay there where he beca- he's a mama's boy, and he's both, he's both... I mean, I think what was interesting is you could sort of have different levels of sort of interpretation. So that I think there's something really nice the way they can sort of have role a little bit of role reversal and they allow each allows the other. She she gets a sort of butch when she's with him and he becomes sort of soft with her. So they they weren't as simplistic <laughs> as we, people thought at the time, I think. But I, as far as I think each film is different. I don't think people saw the ser- were the silk films seen right away as a comment on as well as full-throated soap oh, yeah. opera? Yeah, they, they were. Yeah. They, were. Yeah, they, they were. They were seen as very, very perverted. Well, yeah. people like, uh, uh, who was not explicitly Otto Kruger, mm-hmm. was one people that his, his, his personality was, you know, sort of, much vaguer. Yeah, Gilda, that whole thing in Gilda. Oh, Gilda, Gilda. Yeah, I mean, you can't miss it, really. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot going on there. I just want to follow up on what Eric was talking about, you know, just the heyday of film criticism and film culture and cinephilia and, you know, the sense of a very active conversation. What is your sense of where things stand now and, and why do you think things have changed? Well, the internet, for one thing. I think mm-hmm. I, I'd love to hear from people who are actually yeah. working in that. Um, I, I'd like to know... I just don't know how people have time to read because <laughs> I think there's so many interesting voices and opinions out there, and I'd like to know too. Um, I think that they have been dethroned from the print media in a sense, or yeah. at least they've, if not dethroned, they've certainly been diluted by all these other alternate. Especially with advanced buzz. But know. that's just a version of what was going on when the National Society of Film Critics formed in reaction to Bosley Crowther. Yeah. So there's always a kind of dethroning going on, I think, in one form or another. But there was something more concentrated, I think, about the kind of, which was exciting about the conversation. Now it's just too diffuse and it just the, the Now the problem what the problem is is that when the National Society of Film Critics was formed to counter Bosley Crowder, y'all were still getting paid. I mean that's yeah. that's our not no, much. That's well, yeah, but <laughs> yeah. that's what our thing is, I think, with us. I mean we love writing about film and the print thing has seemed to be uh, shrinking, and we, I, at least I strive to get into print, but the internet is where my stuff is being seen so far, but I'm doing it on my own time. Uh, yeah. Well, that's the yeah. scary part. Yeah. Well, I often thought that the observer went under, which it might well, you know, anytime, <laughs> that maybe we could do a little video thing of you know, talking about <laughs> movie, and just because Andrew loves, I mean, I think that probably all of you here are like that, just love writing, thinking and writing about movies, so that, no, I don't think movie criticism, maybe there are a few places now it's well paid, but it never was, and nobody ever went into it for the money, that's for sure, and The Observer is, is, is 
not much about the same as what the boys well, used Brendan, to have. Brendan Gill used to tease me. He said, you know, uh, you know, uh, Pauline got these good births, you know, the New Yorker and yeah, so forth. And she was much more successful than I was. Yeah. And he says, and you, you, you worked all your life, you know, for fifty dollars a column, no more, no less, you know. And, and that was his joke. Uh, and it's true. I, I, uh, in fact, some, some, some students come up to me and they say, oh, we, we, we admire you, Mr. Ferris. For sticking to your guns and staying in these low-paying <laughs> jobs, and, and I said, "You're making, you're talking to the wrong guy." I, it wasn't the time I would have dropped my voice birth and my observer birth uh, to take a New Yorker birth uh, or a <laughs> Times birth, but nobody wanted me. I mean, how that's do you, a, when you go on the internet, how do you do find your audience? I mean, do they just come to you, right, and then come to you? How does it work? Very much a two-way street, as much as yeah. you putting yourself out there, visiting other people's blogs, leaving an interesting comment, yeah. trying to find out what you're about. Yeah. It's very much a, a I think, old community-driven thing. Yeah. Do you try to get your stuff linked to a site that's already established, mm -hmm. and they're like, you know, <coughs> you'll email the, the person running that site, hey, here's something I wrote, if you mm -hmm. like it, can you link to it? And that trickles in as... So maybe that trickles in, and then by then, by that trickling into your piece, maybe they'll come back to you. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's there's a corollary, I think, to those to the days that you were talking about, in that there is a community being built in which people are constantly reaching out to others to sort of more or less balance their opinions against theirs and balance mm -hmm. their opinions off them. And if you find someone who you feel is sympathetic with you, yeah. you try to develop that relationship only. On the internet, it seems it primarily happens in comments or emails or something like that. And there is no one big room in New York where everyone gets together to talk about. Mm -hmm. that's because that's a lot of because a lot of people aren't in New York. Yeah, like that. The conversation that's happening on the web is happening. The, you know, the entire. I feel like that's the key difference between now and, and your you know the 60s, 70s. Like Sarah's Kale was all in one. Yeah. It was yeah. very provincial. I don't it know was. what the rest of the country you know was aware of. Yeah. Well, also because film criticism, had, I mean, that's what, all there were was newspapers with people who just did reviews that really the level wasn't that high, and then it just gradually rose and rose and rose. And, mm -hmm. and another nice thing, I think film critics really, it's a remarkably, I mean, they have big egos, but at the same time, I think they really like listening to or reading each other. I, I think yeah. um, more than other fields. I mean, I, I don't think... Literary critics are other. No, no. I just think there's a collegiality that, and, ex and that to me is is wonderful. I think the only other the only other thing I would think yeah. where is kind of a community is actually probably rock critics. Mm -hmm. Probably the other yeah. place where yeah. they do you know because music is so subjective. I mean you know in the taste of the visceral. You know, Both have this yeah. visceral thing. Yeah. I think that you get excited about them and you want to right. talk about them. Have you noticed any different response to your reviews now that they are available online? I mean, the fact that your, your, your rave review for my Blueberry Nights is out there all around the world for people well, well, to read? Well, first of all, he doesn't have a computer. Right, right, right. So, no. so you're not, you don't... <laughs> I showed you the typewriter. So, I get emails sometimes. Who gets the emails, um, you know, that... The observer. Yeah. I don't think... They've stopped sending them. They started sending them to me for a while. And fact, they faxed them to you. We yeah. had the same way, and he would type out his column, 
fax it to literally on a manual. They would convert yeah. it to computer, email it to me. I would print it out so he could read it. It seems to be a manual typewriter. What do you, what do you use? Smith Your Corona. Manual? Smith Corona. No, 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 Royal. I, it's oh. a Royal now. I've graduated the the ribbons, yeah. Yeah, it is one place yeah. in New York that you can get even. They're still open ribbons. just for Andrew. They're like Andrew. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, I, I'm I'm in the Stone Age, um, and uh, Columbia used to give an allowance, you know, to, to to do what things outside of academe, you know. And so I I, I finally broke down and bought a, an IBM notepad. And then I paid uh, somebody $500 a week to teach me how to use it. And then I started thinking, and I said, uh, because Jimmy Breslin, who was my classmate at John Adams High School, (laughs) not a classmate, he was one term ahead of me, uh, wrote wrote one time a very macho article that I used to go to the newspaper office. (laughs) He says, now he walks in and everybody's. You know, it's the computer, and he says, and, and, and I, it's so easy to edit that you, the people are sticking extra adjectives on, and everything is becoming a feat. And, so, and I said, well, no, I, I appreciate the macho thing with that, but, but uh, I've never known anybody who went the whole route and then went back. I mean, you know, it's people like me and Breslin are just too lazy. To, uh, to 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 get to get to well, get. So what you told it. you decided was when this guy was. Oh, well, to teach the you. thing yeah. with excited is that I've been looking at one screen or another for you know like seventy years, and I'm not going to spend the rest of my life looking at a computer screen. I said no. How important is humor and criticism? I think it's really important. Which humor? humor. How important oh, humor. humor. Oh yeah. Well, first uh, of all, movies are funny, so if you don't. Uh, yeah, you, you have to have... Um, well, I don't know. When you think of the Cahiers critics, I don't suppose there was a whole Oh, well, the Cahiers critics... It was, uh, grim, it was grim. <laughs> we were, yeah, they were grim. Um, you never know Sturgis was comedy. Right. Oh, right. yeah. Um, humor is very important. Uh, if, you, if you have it, you have it. If you I'm don't... I'm trying to think if there have been any really terrific film critics who had, had no humor. Well, the humor, I think, comes out of most in the reviews I find are, are kind of funny. Is when it's like a negative review. Yeah. When, is when critics can really. Well, that's easy. That is. It's, it is it's, easy. It's, it's it's easy. Good. You can always look good being negative yeah. more than being positive. Yeah. It's harder. But is there a line you cross when you stop being a critic and you become an entertainer that you know makes you lose credibility or something like that? Let's hope so. <laughs> what is well, that? Well, I, th- I think yeah. one of the interesting things, you know, I did this series of. Um, Introductions with Robert Osborne on Turner Classic Movies, mm-hmm. and it was called The Essential. So it was all movies that they considered. It was mostly their choice. I mean, I chose out of their list, I chose. So it wasn't all my favorite films, but they were all ones that people should see. If so a- after we did this, somebody was saying, well, maybe you and Robert should disagree about a mm-hmm. film. And we said, well, if you're doing The Essentials, you can't say this is not a, you know, it's an right. essential film. <laughs> but the other thing is, people really don't want to see you negative. I mean, Roger and they can get away with it because it's a format. But really, on television, people want positive and uh, they want short and positive and not not reflective yeah, it, or hesitation. No, or, no, that, that, that's something I, you know, I yeah. picked up. I, 
I, I, so I that watched all it. automatically compromises a little bit any kind of you know, stringent criteria you might have as a critic. So that's a whole. It is That is a kind of entertainment. I think it's not criticism. Well, even the positive, though, even when you're positive about something, you can be funny by being negative about something else. You yeah, know, right, it's embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, there's you a lot of tricks. You can you sneak, sneak in yeah, all kinds yeah, of. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Negative thing. Yeah, Cisco Labor had had the right chemistry, yeah, and 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 Cisco is not as uh, not nearly as sharp as yeah. Ebert, but but he he's he's perhaps closer to the average, to the average taste than yeah. than Ebert because Ebert is a very refined taste, yeah. and it, it's 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 a and both of them. Can, can sort of enjoy junk. I think you sort of almost yeah. have to in this day and age to be <laughs> a critic or, or you know sort of fun trash or whatever you want to call it. Um, there's so many things that they like that I would never be able to to like. I just yeah. And they used to. I think there was a dumbing down even there because they did a lot of foreign films at one point and then they just sort of stopped doing that and they did. They don't do enough well, foreign stuff right now. And I... Well, it is. No, I mean it's. They, they were only they were the foreign films. There was a time in the eighties when the foreign film was viable, but as time went on, that tripling of well, that happened well, too. How many, but that, yeah, how many markets do a lot of those movies open in? I mean, yeah, they have to talk about things that they But they would do them even though they did have small markets, hoping to get them right. in more places. I think. Well, I, I don't think they have that kind of missionary thing anymore, and, and they're more interested in. They have had a change with the times, DVDs, and all that stuff. And they'll do they'll do that with the DVDs in a way. What they used to do with foreign films by recommending something more obscure. Hmm. What about DVDs? What about the luxury now of not having to write from memory? It's been it's just unbelievable, unbelievable. I mean, for all the bad things today, that is the most <laughs> wonderful to be able to. I mean, also, you know, I've been when I was doing the Turner Classics and I'm doing a book now. To sometimes looking at them on your computer, it's a very, it's very interesting. Perspective because it's an it's a very intense thing. I mean, you think, oh no no, you can't look at it on a small screen. But if you have the right dis focal distance from a small screen, it can be just as intense and mm. enveloping as the old days of looking on a great big screen. Mm. And that's interesting. I mean, I have this little DVD player that I lie in bed because I get tired, just a tired person all the time, and I have it sort of on my knees and looking at things, and it's just fantastic. You don't you don't hear the phone ring or anything. Yeah, well, I have ear yeah, I have yeah. the earphones. Yeah. Well, a student, a student once asked me, you know, I, I want to write about this film, so how many times should I see it before I write about it? And I said, well, you know, I see it once, and then, and then go out, go to a concert, or, you know, go to a, listen to some music, go to an art gallery, and then come back to it after you've changed, and you'll see the movie has changed, something has happened. And... Um, a student recently asked me, you know, she said, how many times do you see a movie before you review it? And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm 100 years old. So, you know, I, so I said, you, you want me to tell you the truth or do you want me to tell you a wonderful fiction about seeing it over and over again so I get all its nuances? So tell me the truth. I say, I can't afford to see any more movies more than once. I'm, I'm in Pauline's shoes right now. And um, it's very hard. It, it, it's, it's very exhausting for me to see movies. And uh, I'll tell you something. I'm yeah. bringing your experience, but ask them. 
because, you know, at one point, Andrew really loved with the observer to sort of, first of all, he's not ever getting screening invitations, but he would catch something the day the weekend it opened and then write about it. So it would come out in the observer after. You know, they want the review to come out right when the movie opened. So that they stopped him doing that, so he can't do that anymore. And I miss it, and because most people don't catch up with it for a week or so, you know, I mean, in, in that period well, of time. Well, the voice, the voice, most of, most of the years I've worked for the voice, I was, I would wait two, three weeks before I reviewed anything. Well, and, and, then I, and then I read everybody else. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, That's and, kind of interesting, uh, though. And, and yeah, and... and, and but I, when you all write about movies, do you, first of all, do you go to screenings and do you keep writing about it even after it's been out for a week or so? How, how, do, how close to opening is your, do you feel you, your deadline is or does it... Do you have various? Yeah. yeah. There are some people here who write about movies long, long before they open. Uh -huh. Because a lot of people here cover festivals. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I mostly go to film festivals and yeah. I'll write about a movie, you know, a year before, before it has to be distributed. Out. Yeah. 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 But then I'll often write about it again. Again. Which is for us, they have to come out to after before the day it opens. Uh -huh. movies, unless they're not screened for critics and then they'll come out. Yeah. But sometimes if a movie is very important, we'll go we'll go back and revisit it in a couple of weeks and talk about the criticism that's been on it. Or well, that's great. I think that's yeah. Yeah. That yeah. You could go back. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. it's something that I'm sure editors don't care about at all. It's just something. They, they will if it's, a movie, if it's something that they think will interest enough. Yeah. Still. Yeah. So I mean, uh, I have luxury of writing for an outlet where we're as interested in the critical and popular response to a movie as we are to the movie itself. Mm -hmm. um, as we are, you know, yeah. and, so, and so to us, we frequently write about movies well after they open. Yeah. And I often wish, and I would be interested to hear your guys' take on this, that more critics um, saw movies in packed houses. I mean, in packed weekend houses as mm -hmm. opposed to in screening rooms or in critic screenings. Yeah. So I do think those are very different audiences to see yeah. a movie with. They are, I think. What do you think about that? Well, I don't think we've ever, you've never been that romantic about, that was the thing Gene Siskel always loved. He loved seeing it with an audience. And I remember. Yeah. Oh, well, I, 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 I don't trust audiences. I, 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 you know, well, I, 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 I recently, I was so desperate, you know, to see something that was, that satisfied all the requirements. So I went to the Ziegfeld Theater. I don't know how many of you know the Ziegfeld Theater. It used to be the Ziegfeld Faldies were there. And it's a huge place. And there were about a million ch children there. Well, what was it for? It, it was for, um, what was it for? A kid movie, the movie. Yeah, a kid movie. Uh, it, it was for uh, that one that's made all the money, the elephant movie. Horton? Hubert. Horton. Uh, uh, Horton Hears a who? who? Yeah, who? Hubert who? Or, Oh, yeah. Or who, yeah, <laughs> whatever. I, I can't even remember. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I didn't dare go into the, into the men's room because I, I, I might bump accidentally into, into a boy, a child, and, uh, and I'd be accused of molestation or something. <laughs> so, and so I was surrounded by all these children. And they, they didn't much, you know, laugh at most of it. Because, uh, it, you know, Dr. Seuss is, uh, you know, a do-gooder, you know, writes and rhymes. And, and, and and this is you know and and this is defending all the little things in the world you know the, right. so was, so was. Uh, 
But, but you know, I, I remember, you know, the, the only link I could make, the, the only significant link, is, and I wrote very briefly about it, is that who can resist an animated elephant or even a lethargic one? You know, and, uh, and I'm a great, great Dumbo enthusiast. I mean, I think Dumbo is my favorite of all animated films I've ever seen. And um, I think elephants are just wonderful. So, so I don't have much to say about it, but uh, I, 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 I think because I've never had children, uh, I, you know, because I, I notice, I notice uh, uh, various critics use their children, yeah. you know, as, you know as, as talking points, you know, like their <laughs> children think and so forth. And I, I don't have that. I'm not, and I, I'm just not interested. I think the real division now, I don't know, I'd like to hear your uh, take on this. In New York, I feel it, is a, there's a kind of film festival film that, uh, that critics love and most audience, that, that never really audience films. And you see this in the New York Film Festival particularly. I mean, some of the Asian films, some of the French films, a lot of these. And Andrew and I were talking about that. Or even, you know, I mean, I think... Uh, the critics loved the, the Academy Award nominees this year. No Country for All Men and There Will Be Blood. And I think most audiences around the country really didn't love those so much. I didn't love them so much myself. Um, but people aren't completely honest. And yet they are. If you talk about, we were talking about, if you ask somebody, what, this is the way movies, I think, used to be in a certain sense. If you ask them what they, think of some television program, they're completely honest about it. Because oh, yeah. There's no artistic pretense. You just, you love it or you don't. And <laughs> no onus if you didn't like it. Whereas certain movies you don't dare not like, almost. Mm -hmm. And I think that's... <laughs> I think television is more interesting right now than movies. This is a, I believe this is a golden age of television. It is. Since the it Sopranos. Is. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, there are a lot of great things. Yeah, just pretty, and it's been more adventurous. I mean, The Wire or mm -hmm. anything, but more adventurous than French. No, I think these are people who decades ago would have been working in Hollywood. Exactly. Now, movies aren't getting made, so they have yeah. to go somewhere. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, Glenn Close is doing her best work on TV that she's ever done. But I, I do agree that there is, a, there can be disconnect in the a festival reaction and then the audience reaction. I mean, but this is also like a Sundance phenomenon where, you know, they always blame the altitude where the audience. Get carried away. <laughs> well, that's a little different. They get carried away. Yeah. Yeah. What about adaptation? I mean, it seems like. Hollywood is so much more inhospitable to originals than it's ever been before. Everything has yeah. to be an underlying property. Well, it's just invested in formula, whether whether it's action film or franchise or you know cartoon franchises or any, all of it is just pre-tested. I think that's true. I think I mean they always went for. They like to have some pre-tested property. I think. I, I think. I think the the bottom line people, you know, the, you know, the old Hollywood moguls for all their absurdities and ridiculous. They were proud of their product. They were mm. proud of the quality. They wanted quality. prestige. They, 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 they want. They want. They want. They and they wanted to they wanted to, to improve the world as yeah. well as make money. Yeah. The, the new bottom line people from business schools and so forth. Uh, they're uh, I, most of them. I don't think even like movies. Yeah. Uh, they, 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 they just that's just of their business. But I think they're more interested in other things. 
I think they're they're probably uh, well, they're all have contempt. Yeah. yeah. Well, most of what you do. Because yeah. someone said, I feel like I do feel like there's less reverence for movies among executives today. But at the same time, if you were really a business person at heart, you wouldn't go into the movie business. I mean, the movie business is such an economically unfeasible business in general for almost everyone. I tend to think there has to be some reason that they're working there. Well, it has sex appeal, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and well, you meet glamorous people, and you know you smoke cocaine, and they like to imagine that they're creative. Yeah, and they all make the mistake of wanting to keep their jobs rather than saying mm. everybody gets fired after three years. Yeah. I want to make the best three years worth of movies as I can before. Yeah, I then they start trying to hang on at any cost. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, let's end before we get depressed about okay. the same movies, but um, thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.